Welcome to the latest edition of the Positive Populist Podcast. My guest today, Henry Olson, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and very excitingly, a columnist at the Washington Post. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And the first question to all my guests is this. Are you, Henry Olson, a positive populist? Yes, to both. Okay, so tell, tell, what does that mean to you when you hear that phrase? Well, what it means to me, uh, starting with the populace, is that we put the interest of the people first, but the interest of the whole person, the mm-hmm. person, the person's soul, the person's well-being. And uh, positive means that we're here to help them achieve what they can achieve on their own, uh, which is government's here to help remove barriers. Yep. Uh, and that's what a populist government does. It doesn't seek to tyrannize. It doesn't leave you on your own. It helps you surmount barriers you can't surmount on your own and then let you go live the free and dignified life that you want. So many people might hear that and think, well, that sounds great, but it also sounds like conservatism. How is this different from what I might think of as just conservative ideas? Well, I think that conservatism, particularly in America, has come to be freighted with a couple of uh, things that aren't necessarily populist. One of them is the belief that uh, there are some people, call them entrepreneurs, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, who are better than the rest of us. And that growth for society comes when we let them be free mm-hmm. and let them decide how we fit in their, their schemes. And that's Interesting. particularly something that is the philosophical underpinning of supply-side economics, and it's fundamentally unpopulous because it fundamentally treats the average person as the tool of somebody who who is uh, in control or directs them in much the same way that a left-wing person would put a bureaucrat in that role. Uh So consequently, that aspect of American conservatism has more in common with the left than with populism. That's really interesting because as you were talking, the first part of what you're saying, I was thinking, well, that's really interesting because a moment ago you said something that sounded very conservative. And now you said something that sounded very socialist, <laughs> which is that which is we got these people at the top, you know, the, the wicked, you know, like whatever people running these businesses who are exploiting the workers. I know you didn't. say I'm putting words in you. I'm, I'm right. sort of exaggerating. But that was kind of the thrust of what you were saying. But then you went on very quickly to, to get to what the socialists really want to do, which is put the bureaucrat. I love that. Yeah. So, but it's still the... Yeah. For the I socialists, guess, for the socialists, they will say they're for the people, but yes. they're for them determining what the people ought to be, what the people ought to live like, how the people ought to live. So for them, it's a top-down, we're going to decide how you live. And on the right, it's a very odd caricature of that, uh, that the element of America that says, no, we're against the bureaucrat doing that, but the businessman should be completely free to do with you as he wish. And if that means that you're going to have to see your income cut in half or your community is going to be devastated, there's nothing that we should do about that. That's a flip side of the same coin of somebody else being in control of your life and you're powerless. And populism, American populism, ought to be, and I believe is at its heart, about putting the people using the government to balance it out so that they have a chance, we all have a chance, to run our own lives in the best way that we see fit. Really interesting. Such a great description. I mean, funnily enough, when, 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 I, when my book was out last year and I was talking about it, and actually in writing it, and funnily enough, and going mm-hmm. through, the, you know, I, I just keep, and, and, and for the last few years as I've become more comfortable with this label and, yeah. and, and started using it and, you know, and putting that word positive in, fr- in front of it to, to make sure we, we stay focused on something positive. That notion of people power, putting power in people's hands, yes. power to the people, which sounds like such a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm aware of that. But that 
I found myself writing that the whole time and, and thinking that a lot of the reforms and the policies that we, that we want to support are about putting power in people's hands. And that, that definitely is a conceit of conservatism that that's what it's about. But as you, as you just so brilliantly put, it hasn't always worked out like that. No, and there's always been, uh, particularly coming from Europe, you've had to deal with crown and gown conservatism, mm -hmm. you know, supporting the institutions of power at the expense of the people as a sense of where a 19th yeah. century conservatism would have come from. And America's version of that, since we never had a town or a, a crown or a gown to support, is uh, the deification of the business person, yeah. uh, is to yeah. give them the sort of power and say, all you people in democratic government who want to to make sure that you have decent working conditions and a fair wage and a school that you can send your child to. Um, if you can't bargain for it, you don't deserve it. That's a part of American conservatism that needs to be expunged. But when it comes back in, it infects the whole body. So interesting. So this word, populism, yes. we've, we've seen it used a lot in the last few years, mm -hmm. particularly since the... Um, it was really 2016, wasn't it, when you saw it really widely applied? You know, yeah. First with Brexit and then with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, we should say, on the left. That, right. that word populism, you, you've seen a lot of it recently. For, is it a recent thing for you? It sounds like these are very deeply held views. I mean, what, tell us about your journey to being someone who now so clearly articulates this notion today. Well, I was somebody who conflated American conservatism with what could be called populism. I grew up in Reagan's California. Uh -huh. I volunteered for the Republican Party starting when I was 12 uh, and imbibed wow. California conservatism as part of my political philosophy. Um, Wait, hang on. You say California conservatives. Is, is that different? Uh, what do this, you mean by that? Later? What I mean by that is uh, that California conservatism didn't have a religious orientation. So mm -hmm. the aspects of conservatism that try and talk about the fundamental roots of Protestant Christianity or Christianity more broadly as mm -hmm. a conservative value, that's not really part of what California conservatism was. It was much more individually based. Mm -hmm. um, and it also uh, was one that had no affiliation with the existing class structure or it was very much a product of being middle class, relatively equal, saying that we should control the government. That was where Ronald Reagan was. Uh -huh. And that's what California and to a broader extent, Western American conservatism was. Was. You, is that a Goldwater reference there when you broadened it to Western? Yeah, it was more that the, is, is less a Goldwater reference and more that there's something about the Rocky Mountain West that uh -huh. is California-like in its conservatism. Right. Um, that's, uh, and I think it's partly because it was uh, the last part of the country that was settled. Uh -huh. There's more, uh, there's le fewer institutions to have been built up. Uh, and it was a melange of people. It's not like right. all the same type of ethnic type came in the, in the West and in California. California, it's all people from different types coming all together and mixing. Uh -huh. uh, it's very different from, from most of the rest of the country. Uh, but so I started in that way, and in around 2009, 2010, I looked well, at... You, you jumped a lot. So you were oh, yeah, Reagan. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I love that, you know, like 12 years old, you're yeah. into Ronald Reagan, you're going out, you're volunteering, you said. Yeah, no, okay. well, look, I, I, um, I grew up at a time of the Cold War, and I uh, uh -huh. was a political 
something attracted me to being politically interested as old as young as six years old. I remember following the 1968 presidential race. You know, yep. how is a six-year-old follow it? I have episodic memories, <laughs> but um, you know, I imbibed a certain anti-communism and, yep. a, and a, but strong belief in the dignity and the freedom of the individual. And all of this comes together with Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as Reagan becomes the leader, you know, I become very enthusiastic about that Republican Party, mm-hmm. um, and I spent my life working in different ways. You know, I was a candidate for office myself. I was a political... Where was that? Uh, I ran for the California State Legislature, the lower house, uh, wow. in the Silicon Valley. That's, okay. At the time... Close was, to where I live now. Yes. Amazing. That's yeah. one reason. I, yes. I grew. I went back to my roots in southern, in West San Jose, and I ran in a seat that uh, went from Los Altos to Los Gatos down course, what now would, yeah, yeah you, <laughs> um, at that time uh, it was Republican enough that whoever won the primary was going to be the representative and I finished second so I wasn't right. went to law school uh, where I studied with law and economics professors um, where, did, where was that University where? of Chicago okay yeah and then uh, clerked with a conservative were you there with the, fa- the famous Chicago school the economy was, was that when your I, well that time? is what the, the same school. Right. Um, you know, so I learned uh, Justice Scalia. Mr. Justice Scalia had been a professor there. Uh, a lot of the people who made that legal school had already been appointed to the federal bench by Ronald Reagan. Right. Right. But so I was there at the tail end of that and got uh-huh. to meet a lot and work with a lot of the people who were still part of that movement. Yeah. And I got out to East Coast being a lawyer um, and just wasn't fulfilling my political, not yeah. ambition, but drive to better the community. So I yeah. went into the think tank world okay. and worked there for many, many years. Which was the first one? Uh, the Commonwealth Foundation, which is okay. a small uh, free market think tank in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So free market sounds, that again, just, we'll talk about labels here, but yeah. you know that label sounds like what you've just criticized. I have moved. Okay. Uh, and what's happened uh, was you know, over time... I began to th- think that the things that I believed in weren't being upheld by the philosophy that was being propounded. And yeah. uh, for me, I started thinking in the early part of this decade uh, about how do we recover that. And yeah. so I thought, well, I'm going to go back to Ronald Reagan. I'm going to start learning about, you know, because when Reagan took over, the Repu- became the leader of the Republican yeah. Party, the Republican Party was considered a dinosaur. It had one third of the members of the House. It had 30 something members of the Senate. It controlled four of the 50 states. Yeah. It was and all of the common wisdom was the only solution was to move left. And Reagan not only moved it to the right, but he made it the equal of the Democratic Party for mm-hmm. the first time in 50 years. So the question is, how does he do this? And what I learned was. When I studied Reagan was he did it by being more unconventional, by mm-hmm. not being the small government free market uh-huh. person that I had been taught he was, but by being somebody who always put the dignity of the person first, which meant that he was much more ideologically um, flexible. Than, so are you comparing than, than, than what most people would say? And so I started to move in course with thinking about. What does it mean to really be for the dignity of the person? Well, sometimes it meant being for the dignity of the person meant necessarily restricting the ability of somebody with power to contract or Mm -hmm. to impose their will on somebody without their, Mm -hmm. you know, 
formal consent. It didn't mean socialism because that doesn't enhance the dignity of the person, but it certainly didn't mean the soft libertarianism that dictates yeah. most conservative economic and domestic policy. Today. So do you think Reagan moved? I mean, are you, are you sort of comparing 1960s Reagan where he you know, first really got people's attention, the, the famous uh -huh. speech that yeah. conservatives talk about supporting Barry Goldwater um, versus his behavior having then become governor, served in office, and then becoming president. It was there. Did he move, do you think? No. What, what, when I did my book uh, on Reagan, The Working Just, Class... Tell us the, yeah, tell us the title. The Working Class Republican Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue-Collar Conservatism. I went out. I wanted to understand how does a man who was so liberal that he was derided as a red in Hollywood, who uh, was uh, head of Truman Barkley for Holly, Hollywood for Truman Barkley in 1948, uh -huh. whose wife, Jane Wyman, uh, said that she divorced him in part because of incessant political prattle. Now, how <laughs> does he move from that to being the conservative? Yeah. And so what I decided to do was actually listen to him. And it was what was interesting was he came up with his own synthesis, that what he always cared about, reason he he was not an ideological liberal. He mm -hmm. wanted to protect people from being pushed around. He wanted right. to secure, right. in the context of 1928 or 1935 yeah. America. Yeah. Yeah. And by the 1950s, he sees, okay, well, the growth of this bureaucratic state is creating the same and in some ways even worse problems than the problems that I was angry uh -huh. about back in my youth. So, But he doesn't change. So even when he's a conservative, he's saying things like that he is for telling every American that no one should be denied health care because of a lack of funds. So When did he say that? He said that the first time I can find he said that in 1961. 1961. But the first time I can find he says it because, right. you know, he's running around the country giving all these speeches and no one thinks he's going to be anything but an actor. Right. So it's not there's, there's not that many recordings left. But they have when he was leading the U or the, the, was this the G period? What, what was he doing there when he's doing this? The is, yeah, the G period is right. that, you know, what happens in the G period when he's doing um, General Electric Theater mm -hmm. is that first the company sends him around to talk about Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes a political thing so that he starts GE Theater in 54, 55. But by 57 and 58, he's adopted this new approach that his talks are mainly about recovering our freedom. Mm -hmm. But he's not delivering the same critique that Barry Goldwater is. Right. And when you listen to the speeches, you can see that, that Goldwater is talking about the Constitution doesn't permit this. And Reagan's talking about the excesses of well-intentioned programs, uh -huh. that, we, that, people, that some people need help. He's for public housing at the federal level. Yeah. He's for things. But what he's not for is the recreation in a public sphere of what the pre-Roosevelt private owner could do, which yeah. is dictate your wages, destroy your community by removing investment, treat you as a serf. And so he keeps the same core. Yeah. He just finds a different way to express it as the problems have changed and yeah. consequently the enemy has changed. Really interesting. So just on healthcare specifically, I mean, it sounds like what he would have been advocating then is what we today would call universal health care. He wouldn't... I don't know if he used that phrase. But. Yeah, he didn't use that phrase. What he was always against, was, what he was always for was making sure that people who couldn't afford it could have coverage. So mm -hmm. he was generally for Medicaid when it was proposed uh -huh. because it was something that made sure that poor people could go to doctors. Mm -hmm. What he didn't want was a one-size-fits-all program that forced every, as he said, would force everybody, regardless of need or income, into the same program. Mm -hmm. Because for that, 
it's not trying to help everybody live a dignified life. It's trying to force everybody to live according to the whim of somebody else. So he would have been opposed to you know, some sort of national health system like you have yes. in the United Kingdom, yep. but he would have been for something that would have been more like the subsidies in Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the pro- alternative that he supported to Medicare, he was attacked for in, 19, you know, in 1980 for having opposed Medicare, the government-run insurance program. Mm-hmm. The reason he opposed it was because it was more extensive than meeting the need, that he was for federal government money to go to states to form their own programs to help poor senior citizens pay their medical bills. Mm-hmm. And he wrote in one letter to a woman who he had 30 years of correspondence with, that if the issue was money, he's for giving more money. The problem is right. we should fund the need, yeah. but only the need. And that means he sits between left and right, but I think very much in the broad American center, which is mm-hmm. government should help the average person live a life that's free and choosing and dignified, and then it should get the heck out of the way. It shouldn't tell you how to live your life, but it shouldn't force other people to put you in a position where you can't live a life, where you're basically living a life Mm -hmm. that they're forcing you to work, whether it's a 60-hour work week or whether it's a world where uh, when their profits go down, you lose 50% of your wages or you have to pay money at the company store, all these things that were common in the 19th century that are now done away with. There's this balance. And even in his last autobiography, he puts in, he said, the core of his belief was always uh, to protect the people's democratic life, uh, democratic rights against a government or an employer. In 1989, when everyone's talking about him as a libertarian, he still puts the words or an employer. That's a direct quote. It's a paraphrase, but you can find, you'll find I have not, the or as an, or an employer is a direct quote. The sense that's of it what is I'm, a no, That's really interesting. No, yeah. That's a direct quote. Or an employer. Uh, it, yes. That's oh, really yes. interesting. Oh, yes. And really it's like, interesting. Yeah. And it's three words, just like the fact that yeah. no libertarian or no pure free marketeer could put those words in because they yes. couldn't see an employer's action as being potentially tyrannical. It's really interesting. It reminds me of something. There was a, le- a leader of the British Conservative Party, Michael Howard. He never became prime minister because – so he's not, not, not particularly well known um, over here. But um, I, I knew him – know him very well, worked very closely with him. He was um, a good man. My wife was was um, very, very, you know very chief. Of, I, not exactly not not the title chief of staff, but worked very closely with yeah. him. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of helping him when he took over. And, and I remember there was a, 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 a line in a speech when I think maybe when he launched his campaign or first became I can't remember what it was. You know, yeah. very, trying to define you know what he was all about. I just really struck me, stayed with me. That was years ago now, um, and it was very much an echo of this. Yeah. He and he did love Reagan. So now I get it. I now I get where it came from because he had this line, which was, no one should be over mighty. Not the government, not the unions, not big business. Not, and we had this sort of list. Mm-hmm. And it started with not the – and he put big business in there. Yeah. Really interesting. It's very much a Reaganite sentiment. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that, you know, that – And it was very simple. Oh, my, that's a conservative party leader. What's he talking about this? Yeah. But it was really interesting. Yeah. And now, yeah. whether he got it from Reagan or if they were just two peas in the same pod, you know, I think Margaret Thatcher had that same sense of fighting for the common person. You know, I'm well, told she, that I, that's true, but I just want—I mean, you, you know—and I'm a huge fan, and and actually, very in a very similar way, can trace back a lot of my entry into the world of politics and so on to her, and and, mm-hmm. and, and seeing her as definitely the champion of working people. Yes, 
hundred percent see see that as, as as right and and small business you know have you know grew up in a sh- you know over the shop you know like small right. grocery shop as, as you know the legend has it you know so not has it legend is now well known that's yeah. how she started where she started definitely a champion of workers but also slightly to you know in contradiction to what you're saying Ella, she did also absolutely venerate the entrepreneur and the oh, business yes. leader as yes. well as the worker you know, yes. that was very much part of her makeup yeah but she was very um sort of anti-establishment in mm-hmm. her attitudes that's what that's what i think of her as a bit of a populist because she was yeah. constantly um sort of attacking institutions and and the establishment wherever almost wherever it appeared yeah but yeah she also lived in a different time and a different place you know I mean, she comes to power in britain which has been uh, socialized uh, to an extent that there's national steel national rail exactly. yeah. and so in america that never happened so while entrepreneurship was in some way suppressed that whole thing that you have to fight against the idea of public ownership yes you know was never present in the United States. Yeah. But it was something she had to battle for. So she had to redignify the private yeah. economic actor in a way that Reagan really didn't. Um, but it may also have been a bit of a difference in between them. You know, again, no two people are identical. Yeah, but it was very interesting in terms of the workers. She very in, 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 in the, the very you know, she fought very hard for the interests of workers. Mm-hmm. And did not equate them as the left did with the unions. That you know, yes. the first um, you know really transformational changes she made were all on reforming the the British trade unions, yeah. and that was all about giving power to the individual workers mm-hmm. rather than the bosses of the trade union movement. Mm-hmm. And the left tried to characterize that and portray that as anti-worker, but in fact it was the opposite. It was it was pro-worker, and that mm-hmm. kind of separating and was very popular as a result. You know, she she forced them to hold elections, to have votes before they went on strike, you know, all the, so, and, and some of the things I, I sort of see a parallel today, you know, the recent Supreme Court ruling on, yeah. on deducting, mm-hmm. on unions deducting, public sector unions deducting um, dues right. uh, from non-members right. and so on. That was always going on. She got rid of all of that. Yeah. Well, again, it was a different place. Uh, so you had different issues to deal with. But, uh, you know, with her nationalizations, it's taking power away from the state, but then giving them to people in terms of privatization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in terms of share ownership, giving power sure. to people as consumers. So, you know, the, the public housing program or the, uh, you call them council houses, that's I right, believe, yeah. you know, selling the council houses so that they're owned by the people. That's another sure, devolution, power right. giving. Yeah. Uh, so, uh very much in line with the Reaganite philosophy, and I think it's uh, that and you know his uh, his uh, handsomeness are two of the reasons why they. <laughs> there's a story in uh, in uh, Edmund Morris's uh, uh, biography of Reagan, where Morris is out at Ra- Reagan's ranch, uh, Rancho de Cielo, uh, in the Santa Barbara Mountains, and they're, they're, he's with Reagan in the barn dealing with the horses, and it's a picture. Uh, or a, a mock movie photo like Gone with the Wind. Only right. he's in the Clark Gable position, and Maggie Thatcher is Scarlett. Oh yes, O'Hara. that's famous picture. Yeah. The famous yeah, yeah, picture, yeah, yeah. and and he says, uh, "Well, why is it down here?" And Reagan looks sheepish and shy and says, "Well, she might see it." And Morris thought <laughs> that was meaning that Nancy would be jealous, but then she re- he realized that Margaret came and she'd be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. What a great story. It reminds me of, of one of my favorite. I, I, I may not get it right as a quote. You can correct me, but I do love it. Um, which the, the ranch reminds me, which is um, 
from Reagan, which is there's no problem in the world that doesn't look better through the eyes, through the ears of a horse. <laughs> have you heard that? I have not, but that would, be, that. that would be something that Reagan would say. He yeah. loved being up there, cleared yeah. his mind, cleared his mind. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so after Reagan, mm-hmm. what, let's just come this sort of joke. What, what happened with, you know, the conservative movement in your view and, and republicanism? I mean, it just got very, I mean, you know, the, the fact that all of that ended up with Donald Trump winning the 2016 yeah. primary, there's an, something happened there. I think what happens is two things. One is that the old pre-Reagan establishment reasserts some of its power. And this is an old pre-Reagan establishment that um, venerates institution and class, you know, not to the extent of perhaps other countries, but um, you had to be from the right places and know the right people. And so that is inimical to a genuine Reagan populism. And then there was an ossification of conservatism. I think what happened was um, libertarians took Reagan and convinced people who venerated Reagan that they were his true interpreters. Uh So that Reagan, for Reagan, who would raise taxes or lower taxes, depending on the circumstance, who always made sure, going back to his speeches in the 1950s, he always talked about cutting taxes for everybody, cutting taxes particularly for the middle class. Mm -hmm. When he was governor, he raised tax on the rich people and lowered property taxes mm-hmm. for, and turn it into a cartoon version so mm-hmm. that they make Reagan into the ur entrepreneur lover, the person who only cared about the reduction of the top rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, have an, so you have the inversion of Reaganism and the reassertion of the non-populist strain of conservatism mm-hmm. so that by the time Donald Trump comes up, the, the Republican voter hasn't had an authentic Reagan voice for quite some time. It's mm-hmm. people who didn't have the cadence right because they didn't at the heart really love the average person in yes. all of their not, you know, the, the, I once worked for a think tank where the boss derided 40-hour-a-week men. Well, 40-hour-a-week men is the American voter. That's and the reason right. you have 40 hours a week is so you can go home and do something besides work. That's right. But so you've yeah. got that deification of the 80-hour-a-week entrepreneur plus the person who thinks that the right people ought to rule. And there was too much of that in American conservatism. And then Donald Trump comes along, and he certainly has made, I think, a number of mistakes. Um, but at his heart is this sense that you, the average person, the 40-hour-a-week man, is the average American. You've been getting the shaft from both parties for mm-hmm. the last 20 years, and you need somebody who's going to come in and take on the elites in both parties mm-hmm. and shake it up, because otherwise the American dream's not going to work for you, and it hasn't been working for you for a long, long time. And Mirable Dictu, they responded because that was what they had yes. wanted. And it's interesting to me, the reaction that you see to that from well you could say well maybe on the right it's predictable but the left who love to think of themselves as being for the worker for the people you hear this language all the time from the left but this incredible snobbish reaction to to that pitch and that relationship when when, you know the pitch where Trump says I'm for the workers bring back jobs the manufacturing you know those sort of Mm -hmm. those those kinds of um uh, commitments and that kind of rhetoric, yeah. and it's just all derided and and looked down upon yeah. by the same people who 
have always thought of themselves as being for workers. Yeah. Well, I think it gets back to some of what we were talking about earlier, is that the farther left you go, the more you tend to see the belief that only collective action has moral ju- has moral validity. Mm-hmm. So a private person creates a job. No, no, that that doesn't have any moral standing. But the public working together through deliberation and, by the way, through our leadership, creating a job, that has moral dignity. So what Trump is talking about is a very different definition of how the people prosper, that it's not the people who prosper according to a socialist or social democratic party's plan Mm -hmm. to work in the green industries they value, to drive the electric buses they value, and not work here because they don't like it, but rather to choose for themselves. But to also, for Trump, get some things out of the way, like the ability of a rich person to contract with somebody for a dollar a day in Indonesia without showing any social responsibility to the country that makes their wealth possible. So he finds enemies on the right, but on the left, that whole idea that the people can and ought to judge for themselves is anathema to how they define the good of the people. And just last last question, where do do you think it goes from here? Does does this, do you think that this is a a lasting shift on the right, or is it something that comes and goes with Donald Trump? I think that's the challenge that people like me and and you have, which is I think the center of gravity of the voters of the right is here. They want this sort of government. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the sort of person who ran away from the Republican Party in the pre-Trump years uh, want this sort of government. I think the people who... don't like Trump the person would like a more positive populism that doesn't isn't uh, brought down by some of his rhetorical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where the center of Americans still are. The question is whether or not the Republican Party wants to give it to them. Mm-hmm. And you still have the oh, there are now the institutions of the libertarian ideological wing and the Chamber of Commerce wing, both of whom want to preserve their power in some way, and they're fighting back. I think ultimately the people will win, uh, and I hope it's sooner rather than later. Very interesting. Well, what a great... I think you've definitely proved that, as you said at the beginning, you really are a positive populist. And it was a great pleasure talking to you. Henry Olson, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Okay. I think we're good. Yep. Sorry if I went on a little no, long that was perfect. in some places. That was great. So interesting. Yeah. That was great. I mean, this, you seem to like the Reagan stuff. So I love the Reagan. Stuff. I think, yeah. and I think people will love to hear that. And it's not something, yeah. you know, these conversations. You know what it's like. They go all, all different directions. And yeah. That's what makes been, a podcast interesting. Sometimes it's been very much, the, you know, like very sort of personal. And then this was m- much more, as you'd expect, given you know, like the sort of historical and the ideas element to it. Yeah. But I thought it was really interesting. I could have gone down that, but it just seemed to be, no, the you know, we wandered in a way. Yeah. I, and I found it, because I, 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 I think I've picked up the superficial caricature yeah. myself. Well, yeah. Reagan. What's interesting when you read and listen to a Reagan speech is actually how finely crafted it is. Yeah. Is that, you know, when I was younger and I'd listen to it, you know, listen to a time for choosing and it's it's like, I wouldn't get it. You know, there, there, there's a, there's a superficial libertarianism about it. Right. But then when you actually read it, you know, think about it, look at it a second time and a third time, it's, oh, he says this. And I'll bet you the person who doesn't come from my preconception heard that, but not the other thing.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.